Everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. In the never-ending quest to talk about things I know nothing about, we, we have exi- Exhibit A coming up, but uh, really lucky that Brian Sansbury from Aegis Energy is my guest today. Welcome in, Brian. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. So you and I were kind of texting, emailing back and forth because we never met. And I think your opening remark was, yes, Yates, you never hired me for any portfolio companies at Kane. Is that really true? That is true. I, we may have met once when you came into a pitch we were doing at Kane. And I, I will, because I love your podcast and I always watch. And I would just remind your viewers that you didn't hire us and you were subsequently fired. <laughs> so, so I don't know if that's directly related, but nah, that, that's what go. I know. So I was talking to a CFO of uh, one of the oil and gas companies today, and he said, you know what? I'm glad you got fired, Yates, because prices have only gone up since they kicked you out. So I've got that going for me, too. So there we go. So you have kind of this wild story on how you started Aegis, all that Aegis. Sorry, I'm going to say Aegis five times. I apologize. Um Walk me through that real quick, because you weren't a lifelong energy guy. No. In fact, I spent 22 years outside of energy and taking what was an advisory business into into a really tech-driven business, which we can certainly talk about, Um, but had a good friend uh, who uh, was in the business, uh, worked for one of our competitors. Um, He was struggling a little bit on a little crossways with some future decision-making and what they wanted to do with, with their company. And, you know, I, I knew I didn't want to do what I was doing for a long time. And, um, you know, and so I, I said, why don't you, why don't you start your own? And, you know, there were a lot of concerns, capital, you know, leadership, all sorts of things. I said, I'll, I'll, I'll back you, you start it. And someday I'll be able to walk away from what I'm doing now and I'll join you, which I don't think he ever thought would happen, but, you know, he just was formed over, several bottles of wine, you know, at a beach one night while I was, you know, on my way to transferring up to Chicago. Most good, most good stories start that way. All buddy movies start with too much, too much wine. So, so literally y'all started, when was that? 2013. I think September, 2013 was our uh, formation date. I joined full-time in October of 2017. So you just kind of grew up as an advisory business um, early on while I was in my prior career and, you know, had a chance to transition out and join Aegis full-time in 17 and done some fun things with it since then. Cool. So, so what do you guys do? What, and, and, and maybe when you talk about that kind of evolution over time of what you do. Sure. So yeah, we'll start with today. Yeah. Um, software advisory, great people helping people navigate the hedging and, and, uh, carbon offset markets kind of sent, that's the simplest if you cross, you know, oil and gas, manufacturing, you know, transportation, et cetera. Um, so, you know, the, the business has evolved a lot. When we started the business, it was very much, you know, founded on this belief that hedging transactions, it's complex derivatives that people use to protect their prices, especially in oil and gas. We were in Houston. It was the logical place to start. 
um, that people needed help facing off with the likes of Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and Citi and you know the big players on what's the right structure, what's the right tenor, what's a fair price, et cetera. So it was a pure advisory business um, when we started. Yeah, because what, what always happened, it seems like you're making acquisition, right? You're a, an EMP company and you're closing on, you know, let's say July 15th and all the week up to it, you, you generally had to, at least back in the day, do your hedging through the bank that, that has your borrowing base, has your RBL. And they always quoted you, quoted you, quoted you. And then literally on the day of closing, the market moved a dollar a barrel or something because they had you over the, uh, over the barrel. There were such nice guys at J. Aaron. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, look, that's, that's kind of part of it. And we, yeah. we thought that, you know, you know, people that are, you know, that are finding oil and gas and exploring, and now it's transitioned to people who are making, uh, making beverages or, you know, growing ags or moving product, you know, they need to focus on doing that. They don't need to be experts in the derivatives market. And so, you know, that, that has always been at the core of who we are is that we can help them be, you know, better, um, you know, better at the table when they're facing off and hedging their commercial risk. And so, the, so, so, I mean, producers, uh, kind of when I, when I got into the business, you actually wanted to be unhedged because that's why investors were investing. They wanted exposure to the commodity markets. And then you would have downturns in which everybody would get fired because you went bankrupt. And then, <laughs> then CEOs started saying, we might want to hedge. That might be better. And so you you grew up with um, in terms of oil and gas companies wanting to hedge lock in prices. There always had to be somebody on the other side of those trades. What you just said that I think is interesting that I don't know anything about and I'd love to hear more about is who's on the other side of the trades and are they really locking in costs? Because it would make a lot of sense. I mean, if I'm an airline, theoretically. I should be locking in costs just for predictability, but yeah. So, what, what we everything that we do is bilateral in nature: direct contract between a producer or consumer. So okay. We'll come back to that, and a and a financial institution. You know that okay. that is that is how these markets are made, uh, and so we're not we don't have an oil and gas company facing off with an airline per se. Both of them would be facing off with a financial institution, who's then able to lay that market out or lay that risk off in the market or or hold it if they'd like. Uh, but but you're exactly right. If I'm a if I'm a upstream, so real quick, I'm gonna cut you off. I'm sorry. The financial institutions that do that, you have the big money center banks that all seem to have arms. Are there other folks doing that too? There are. You'll have a number of folks who are doing both secured and unsecured folks like Cargill or Nextera or, you know, Coke was in the business for a long time. They're starting to get into KOCH, Coke. Um, you know, so there are a number of different players. Shell, BP have desks that do different trading as well. So you're right. Money center banks and a number of, a number of others who are willing to take positions and, um, and sometimes do it in an unsecured way. Gotcha. So, Okay, that's that's interesting. So basically they're sitting in the they're sitting in the middle and it makes sense cuz you need a balance sheet if you're going to take if you're going to if you're going to take the uh the trade. And so the producer side of it makes sense to me. It's you know, hey, we, you know, oil's at 75 grade. I want to lock that in. Do you work with any of the consumers? 
Oh, cool. Tell me something about that, because that's something I don't know anything about. Sure. So we've got beverage manufacturers um, that have massive aluminum exposures. If you think about, you know, purchasing billions of aluminum cans a year. So we made an acquisition of a company called Nexodus Commodities about a year and a half ago that got us into that that space so that now people can lever. When we say producers or consumers, when you're a consumer, your, your price risk is the exact opposite way if you're a producer. Um, and so you can hedge those risks also. When you're in manufacturing, you can see, you know, I, I take a big beverage manufacturer and just play that through. They also have diesel exposures because they're sh they're shipping their products different places. They have bunker fuel exposures as they put that product on ships. They have you know, FX exposures because they're selling in multiple countries. In many cases, they have interest rate exposures because they've got debt on their facilities. They've got power exposures and, you know, exposure to natural and gas because they're, they're, um, they're consumers of all of those um, different commodities. And if you're a beverage manufacturer, I would think your revenue top line dollar per bottle is pretty sticky. I mean, right? I mean, co you know, you have inflation and you adjust prices and all, but for the most part, Coke wants to sell the bottle the same price every year, That's right? right? And the, the, you know, your consumer on the end of it of the product expects to pay a certain price when they walk into a convenience store or a grocery store. Um, you have seen those prices move substantially here lately, like everything. But you're right. The, you know, if you're a if you're a um, manufacturer, you want to keep your prices consistent. Yeah. the The thing I saw it move this weekend that struck me that I hadn't noticed before is when you go buy ice. You know, like ready made ice from the grocery store. They're no longer ten pound bags. They're seven. And they still cost two bucks. Really? Yeah. It's a seven pound bag now. When you go to the grocery store and just check it out, because that's the other way you handle inflation, right? You just give them less. It's interesting. So so what would a what would a typical consumer or I guess, yes, consumer look like and just totally make this up? And again, it's because I know nothing, and this is interesting to me is are they hedging three years out, five years out, six months out? And I know everybody's going to be different, but give me an example of. Yeah. So you're going to see oil and gas producers right now, as you know, getting out, you know, three years in most cases. You know, we, we just did transit. Someone hedged out all their production for five years, you know, 100%. Um, did a recap. And that's a, that's a great way to you know, lock in your cash flows. Most markets won't allow you to go out that far. When you look in the metals markets, you're looking at a year or two years, generally speaking, is about as far out as you can get. And there's a lot of backwardation in those markets. Lumber's even shorter than that. So you see home builders, you know, hedging, you know, lumber costs. Jet fuel, you can get out a little further, a couple of years. So we're seeing airlines get a lot more interested in hedging again. You know, those programs that went, um, you know, that people got so scared of for a while, right. we're seeing those, those come back. And you, know, you could hedge jet fuel, um, you could buy calls on on uh, on jet fuel for ninety cents in the middle of you know the, the pandemic and yeah you know, jet fuel is a lot more expensive than ninety cents right now so that was yeah, a, and that they was also, a really good hedge to make and they also had every plane sitting on the ground <laughs> right. I mean it, that's right but, that was yeah but and so is this a true statistic I'm sorry I'm jumping around but the problem with a ADD podcast has you know the one issue that the that airlines have is it's my understanding that at least historically, I don't know if this is true post pandemic is some ridiculous percent of the ticket sales on each individual flight 
80%, I'll kind of make that up, happen in two weeks before the flight. Which, so, is, which is good. Well, but, but if that's your if that's your <laughs> revenue and you're talking about locking in the price of fuel, I now understand why it's kind of kind of tough for them. Right. Well, that there's no doubt about that. Yeah. But but if you've got if you're setting a schedule out because people are purchasing you know purchasing tickets on flights six months a year from now, I saw people talking about buying flights that are really expensive out a year from now. If you can start to lock in your costs and you have a lot more control of you know every every move you make from a revenue perspective can just be a lot, a lot yeah. smarter. Um, if you understand what your underlying and are our airlines are. really that sophisticated, I would think they, they are, they're, they're yeah. pretty darn sophisticated. Hey, we've got X number of miles bought a year out. Let's go lock in the fuel costs today. Absolutely. And we've guaranteed our profit. Absolutely. Oh, that's interesting. Cause it, I think it was Southwest airlines at one point hedged out five years when oil prices were really low and the great profit run they had, and they were writing articles about how well they were doing, literally was just the hedge. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, yeah, we were actually talking about that this morning in the office, that I, I wish people didn't even talk about it. Because if you remember the language that was being used back then, and we'll compare it to what's been happening today, they were talking about these huge gains they were getting on their hedge book, right? right. And, and you hear the same sort of language being used with hedging today on these big losses that people have on their hedge book if you're an upstream oil and gas producer, right? And that is a mark-to-market loss, and we can certainly see. But, you know, as my good friend Gary Tanner at, at Quantum always says, that the you know country club is filled uh, with people who sold too early. Yeah. And so, you know, if, if, you're an, if you're an oil and gas producer and you, well, let's just use it in what people think about. It. If your cost of Apple stock is $2 a share and you sell it for $5 a share and it proceeds to go to $9 a share, how much did you lose? Yeah. I mean, you didn't lose anything. Right. You made money. You decided to you sell it five. Bucks. Right. You don't, you don't need, you, you can't worry about what the, what the stock did afterwards. And you have to think about hedge programs the same way. You know, if you sold your gas at $5 and you're lifting costs or two, you're making a lot of money. Could you have made nine? Sure. But you, you protected yourself, um, you know, and had certainty. And I'd say the same thing about Southwest Airlines. They had quote gains on their hedge book, but they paid a higher cost in the field what they did is they locked in their price. So they had surety. Yeah. And that's what hedging needs to be about is about surety, not about trying to drive alpha in an investment portfolio. Yeah. No, I, I think, I think, uh, I think certainty and you're right. I mean, the beta just so dominates our industry really on both sides. Cause you know, the great Amazon run of all time. Well, we had historically record low oil prices, i.e. low gasoline. That's why all those vans got to run around. You know, there's definitely a day of reckoning coming to those guys. Well, I thought y'all did a great job on zero talking about Amazon's carbon footprint for exactly those reasons. And that that is, you know, the, you're right. That's those were built on the back of, you know, low, low, you know, crude prices. And there's no other way to way to say it. Yeah, I tweeted out one day that they need to pay for the plugging and abandonment liabilities <laughs> right. of all the yeah. of all the old wells. So, so we've kind of got this active market on on uh, what I'll call the consumer side of of energy. How has that market changed over time? And I'm thinking, but you correct me where I'm wrong. One, it's gotten a lot more sophisticated, and then two, there's probably a lot more in the way of software and technology to help predict and manage that 
Or is it still all kind of spreadsheets? Well, it depends on who you ask. Yeah. Um, but you asked about the evolution of our firm. So I joined in 2017. <clears throat> I had a lot of pattern recognition on, hey, there was a there's an advisory business. We happened to be focused on HR. You know, I, I date myself a bit. Go back when I started in 1995. You know, 401k statements. You you may remember this. 401k statements came quarterly. You could change. Yeah. You could change your um, election quarterly. You enrolled in benefits on a piece of paper. Now, right. Like this plan, and pensions, which aren't really around anymore. But pensions, you know, your ability to figure out what you had was basically zero. And yeah. so there was this shift on bringing all that online. So now that's ubiquitous. Everybody knows that to be a you know be online and things you can do. So we started looking at Aegis in, in late 17 and saying, well, this is this is an interesting advisory business. I think there's a lot of application for technology. Started out simple. What do people need to report to the board on how much is hedged and at what weighted average price? And you know, we kind of started really slowly. Um, and it ultimately came, you know, we ultimately built out our technology to do things like ingest confirmations, digitally read them, match them to a trade and allow you to docu-sign through them. Same thing with a settlement that came in from a hedge. And so every year it's just gotten more and more advanced. Um, more recently we've been, you know, we've been applying analytics. So you, you, you were in the industry a long time. People used to say, oh, it should be 75% hedged in the front right. and 50% next year and 25%. Well, that's, that's silly. That has, that, that doesn't tell you anything other than maybe the bank had that <clears throat> written in right. the RBL. Um, but there's a more sophisticated way to think about what am I trying to solve for? Am I solving for a cost per or a revenue per unit, a top line revenue, EBITDA, et cetera. So we're now applying analytics to allow people to model the impact of hedges. And then most importantly, just the modernization of how these transactions get done. Um, you know, I, I kind of stepped into this business and, you know, most people were doing it over the phone. Literally pick up the phone, call five banks, get bids or offers, try to decide. By the time you got the fifth bid, you were, you know, the first bid was no good anymore. Market um, moved on us. You and so you know, and the more advanced folks are using ice chat, which you know, we're 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 users of ice chat ourselves, but it's effectively like And trading. what's ice? Um, well, ICE is a, is a broad market, does lots of different things. They have a product called chat. That's effectively like, you so that's I the intercontinental exchange. Yeah. Gotcha. So that kind of, is that a competitor of the NYMEX? Uh, yes, correct. Kind of? Yeah. Okay. They, they, yeah, they would all have different markets for, you know, for, you know, trading, settling, um, different securities and derivatives. Um, but we, so ICE chat is effectively like you and I negotiating this significant bilateral contract over WhatsApp or text message, which oh, wow. we, which we thought was odd, you know, as someone that was new to the industry. And so we started building out some software to, to be able to, you know, help facilitate those transactions. Hey, can we push information out to multiple banks simultaneously, collect bids and offers on a single screen, you know, have someone work in order, you know, close out that transaction, pass it, do reporting. Bring us to like circa 97 Correct. in the every, world. Right. Yeah. Every, every other market on the planet works that way. And, and it was hard to figure out why why this bilateral market didn't. And, and I think we just, where we ultimately landed was the banks didn't really have an incentive. Goldman building a platform for JP Morgan to trade on wasn't really going to happen. And no individual company could build it themselves, right, in a way that the banks would facilitate it. So by virtue of, you know, it's probably worth saying we have over 25% of U.S. oil and gas volume flowing through our platform every day on the energy side. And so, yeah, we were large enough where we could afford to make that investment to build that that technology out. Led us into a whole 
different discussion, but that that sort of full picture of reporting to you know analytics to executing trades on a platform has been a really fundamental shift since you know even the late you know call it twenty eighteen. So was it just the oligopoly didn't want the transparency because they were making enough money or? Or was it more kind of just stuck in their ways or, or all of the above? I, I don't know is the, is the short answer. Uh, but I just don't think that the market had a logical person to build it. You know, yeah. for, for 40 different banks and unsecured you know, folks to get together and come up with a platform, that's a, that's a long putt. And so I just don't think there was the incentive for anybody to get together and, and you know, get a platform that would, that would make sense. And uh, so, so back, back before I joined Kenny Anderson, I was with Stevens, Little Rock, Arkansas Investment Bank. And that was, so I was there 94 to 2001 and you saw the rise of the internet and you also had the rise of Enron during that. And Enron at some point came up with something Enron online and that was going to be, you know, fully transparent. You're trading with, we're with Enron. You no longer have to call, get quotes from us. You can get quotes and everything. And what was interesting about that is Enron was big enough and powerful enough at that point that people were really scared. Do we want to trade straight with them? Uh, we're giving them our information. Um, and so one of the ideas we came up with at Stevens was we were going to, and I forget what we were going to call it, but it was basically, it was going to be some anonymous site that would trade with Enron online. So we'd literally just sit in the middle uh, between people that wanted to trade with Enron online, but needed to come. So we put it together. The Stevens family uh, was willing to back it because it was going to take some balance sheet type issues to do. I want to say we had four or five different meetings with Enron, including one that I think Skilling said hi at. I don't, you know, and, and all that. For whatever reason, we didn't get it done. And thank goodness. Because <laughs> we, <laughs> right, we yeah, would, sure. would have been swept up in the uh, in the in the bankruptcy. But there's I, I just kind of lay out that story because I think a lot of energy trading historically has always had the paranoia of wanting to retain the information, wanting to, to own it. And so that was probably legacy. So the, the software kind of stuff that you guys set up, is that a product you sell or is that just clients of the firm use it? How does that work? So it's, it's evolved a bit at this point. So it's part of our offering. So our, our customers would, or our traders are on behalf of our customers will use the software. We also have customers who only use us for technology. We don't do trading for they'll, they'll be able to, um, you know, to, to do that trade as well. Now the shift to swap execution facility, which I'm sure you'll, we'll talk about here in a second, um, actually opens it up where it's going to be available to all folks like us. So other, other hedge advisors, including our competitors. And there, there's a, bit of a long story on how we got there. Um, but it'll actually be opened up to, you know, any market participant, including individual consumers, producers, other, you know, hedge advisors like Aegis, uh, even introducing brokers, et cetera. So it'll be open access to, um, you know, the broader community. Cool. Okay. So walk me through 
creating the software and giving it to competitors. <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't necessarily the the design, um, but but what we did we, when we created the software, we you know we we sat down with our council, uh, regulatory council, and said, hey, we just want to make sure that we're doing this right. You know, we don't want to become a FCM or DCM or all these, you know, any, any sort of exchange was kind of the way I would, would say it. And we got a clean bill of health in the review and reading the regs. And we, we just said, you know, we should, we should just talk to the CFTC and just make sure that we've got this right. Legal opinions, one thing. What is the CFTC? It's Commodities. Commodity Future Trading Commission. Future My Trading. Futures Trading Commission. Futures. Okay. Um, yes, yeah, so they oversee all of the all of the derivative markets. They played a huge role, as you as you can imagine, in Dodd Frank, um, and what that they were really tasked with enforcement and rollout of all the rules around Dodd Frank, which was meant to bring some tra- additional transparency into the derivatives markets. Yeah, basically for all the kids in the audience, we almost melted <laughs> down. <laughs> yeah. What was the name of the the hedge fund that that? Uh, oh gosh, one of the ones that brought all the Dodd Frank stuff around. There was a there was a hedge fund out there that was the def- definition of systematic risk, yeah. and and almost almost went down. And so Dodd Frank, at least as I understand it, was basically about let's try to force. As many of these trades that go on privately, public somehow, let's get them clearing through exchanges, et cetera. Yeah, credit default swaps and a bunch of those things were at the core of that. And you're, you're right, but and so Dodd Frank came along and said, "We just know there's these opaque derivative markets. Let's see if we can't get a little more, you know, a little more visibility to them fundamentally." Right. Um, and so, you know, we, so CFTC does that. They also work with the National Futures Association, which is a bit of their oversight, you know, arm. And we had a conversation with them and it opened up a really interesting dialogue and in them understanding what the folks like us, hedge advisors, you know, you know, broadly term, what we did um, and how we function in the market. And, you know, the, the question was simple. Have we done anything that requires additional registration? We've talked with our counsel. They say, no, we'd like your opinion. And after a couple of months, they came back and said, um, yeah, actually, yes, you've got to register as a swap execution facility, which is the, uh, there's, there's 10 things we could have heard that probably was the worst um, outcome. And we, we really tried to understand why that Hold was. On, Brian, I'm be a bit of a prick here, but when you go ask a barber, if you need a haircut, they always say yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying, but go fair, ahead. Fair. Um, but we wanted to be, we wanted to be clear. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't want to be out there with something that could, could cause us some problems. And, and they, they told us it wasn't at all about the technology that we talked about. They told us it was about our business model. Um, and, and, and this is very confusing for us and for the entire industry. They said, Multiple to multiple trading facilities must register as CEFs. That's a, that's a lot of words. And we always say, well, we're not multiple to multiple because everything we do is bilateral. One producer facing off with multiple banks, right? That, that's, right. A, that's, a, that's a single to multiple. Um, and they said, well, you do it for more than one customer. So therefore you are multiple to multiple, okay? Which we, we, didn't, we didn't understand that, okay? But they're the boss. Um, but we said, okay, so fine. We just won't use our technology because if we're not a trading facility, we don't need to worry about it. They said, no, has, you know, trading facility is defined as any form of interstate commerce. Again, a lot of words, but that goes on to say, including phones, chats, other electronic communications, which meant 
if you do this in this way, have more than one customer facing off with multiple banks and you use a phone, chat, or other communication, and that's, that was a definition of what we did as a core business, then you have to register as a SEF. And so we- What does SEF stand yeah, for? Swap Execution Facility. Facility. Yeah, Got um, it. Yeah, it's a, that's the term for the regulated you know, entity. And so you know, we thought, okay, we need to fill out an application. And I'll, I always tell people, we, I literally went to a Starbucks one day in Denver, said, I'll just fill out the application while I'm sitting here. And as I opened up, I said, this is going to be a little more complicated than we thought. And, you know, a year later and 2,600 pages, we had our application in. Um, and rightly so. It's incredibly complex. You know, are you complying with cybersecurity policies and open access requirements and all the things that are in the regs? But one of those things, kind of wrapping back to the original question, is it's got to be open access. You know, so it's it's not just for you. It has to be for anyone who wants to become a market participant. And so that opened it up to say, you know, other hedge advisors, other introducing brokers, individual participants who want to participate participate on it. Um, can enter. And so, you know, that again, it wasn't by our design to start that way, but we actually think that's going to be really good for the industry over time. If we drive some standards and and have a place where, you know, there is some additional oversight and, and, you know, tracking and auditing of, of these transactions. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. The, and just as a side note, I uh, am actually a commodity pool advisor or operator, CPO. So I had to take the test, and I've chatted with the NFA in, uh, in Chicago multiple times. Those tests times. are no joke. Yeah, no, it was kind of hard. <laughs> I thought I'm a pretty sharp guy, and I'm sitting there sweating out when I hit you know the inner button of, did I get my uh, stuff right? But So that'll be cool. So, so theoretically, software, and that kind of helps because, I mean, calling people on a phone, typing into, into Excel just needs to go away. I mean, right. that's... You know, it, it is, it, like we said earlier, it's one of the last markets that, that trade this way. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, it's, it's very similar to the carbon markets, which we're actively involved in too, where, you know, the, these, this idea of trading is just very much a, you know, phone brokerage game or a chat brokerage right. game. And so it's, it's just time for this market to be a little more, a little more modern. Last question kind of on the business and just for the listeners out there. I told Brian, we're going to jump in and talk about trends and all this, and, and we'll get to, to Aegis at the end. And, of course, we've spent, spent all this time, but it's been, it's been interesting. So your, primar- your primar- primary business is bilateral swaps. Um, tell us real quick what that is and how those things kind of look like. Yeah. At its most basic, it's called a swap because you're swapping a variable price for a fixed price. That's kind of the okay. simplest thing. So, you know, if, if I, if I want to lock, if I have production next year and I want to guarantee a price, then I will effectively sell my crude oil or natural gas at that price. And I, that I enter into a contract. So if the price is higher than what I agreed to sell it for, then I owe the bank money. And if it's lower then they owe me money. So it's effectively a, you know, I guarantee the price that I'm going to get for that that contract. There are other derivatives of that, so not unlike any market, you can have options, you can have you know you can have um, you know puts, um, you know et cetera, and so collars and, and yeah. calls, and so there's lots of different ways to hedge it. But you're effectively entering into a contract that gives you certainty around the price you're going to receive in a in the future. And this is really going back into the brain because I've had a lot to drink since I left Kane. <laughs> no, but, great. but, um, 
is are they done under ISDAs? Yes. Kind of okay. What's an ISDA? Ours are. Oh gosh, I've. Uh, do you yeah, even know what I, it stands I for? Used to, no, I don't. Anyway, but the, but the agreement. The yeah. A is agreement. It's <laughs> right. it's ISDA. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, but it's basically a standardized contract that you enter yeah, these swaps de- with. Exactly. Yeah. It defines how things will be settled, how things will be, you know, calculated, what sort of credit charges. I mean, so it lays out all of the underlying terms of the deal, if you will. Good. And when you do a bilateral, does it get cleared through an exchange? It doesn't go through NYMEX. It doesn't go through through ICE. And wow, I'm recalling my NFA test. Um, to to be excluded from that under Dodge Frank is because you're actually an operator. Is well, that why? Yeah, it's called a permitted transaction to get, if you remember that term. So there's required transactions that have to be cleared. These are permitted. Um, you have to be a commercial end user. So, you know, it, you have to be hedging an actual business risk. You know, so it's, this is not speculators that come out and, and enter into these, what are called permitted transactions that don't require clearing, but you know, we can get out of time. So two, two hedge funds aren't doing bilaterals. That's exactly they're, right. They're well, they could of- theoretically, if they have an ISDA set up with each other and they could enter into a, a bilateral transaction, that's pretty rare though, because two hedge funds entering into an ISDA would be. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. Right. I got you. Okay. Yeah. All right, let's jump into trends. So oil, I've never seen this level of backwardation and it doesn't make any sense to me. Am I right? Am I wrong? <laughs> what's what's sentiment out there on that? Yeah, look, you know, our job is to make the bear and bull case and, you know, talk about what's the best way to protect risk. So we try not to make calls we'll on We'll make price. both sides of it then. Yeah. yeah, look, I think the the bull case on on crude is 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 pretty simple. Um massive underinvestment for a long time and you know we this has been obviously well well documented well um talked about not as much capital going into the space you know therefore production's just not coming the the way we thought demand is you know continuing to increase and i i think you're you're going to you know you're 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 at a place where we are uh we are undersupplied at this point uh you know the bear case is also equally simple you know we're how do we avoid a recession at this point? Yeah. I don't know, right? How longer? I paid $5.59 for gas yesterday in Texas. You know, that I just don't know how long people are going to continue to put up that. And, and you know, we're going to, you know, are we going to see demand destruction? Yeah. Look, let's hope we never have COVID again. But, you know, what's the next outbreak? Does, you know, what if Putin pulls back and says he's sorry in Ukraine and we go back to normal? You know, it, there's a whole bunch of things that could, you know, that that could, you know, that could bring prices down, but I think the bull case is hard to ignore on, on crude right so now. So I've had a theory about backwardation because, you know, I just don't understand how oil well can be 110 and you can go out to DS 25. By the way, it sounded like I was a trader there. <laughs> DS is just December, but uh, anyway, uh, DS 25 and get a barrel, I think for 75 bucks or something like this. I've always been an efficient market guy. I mean, I just, oh, it doesn't, NYMEX futures doesn't mean they're right, but it is the collective intelligence, if you will, of every participant. You know, the airlines have been in the tank and historically they've been the buyer of the trade, you know, particularly kind of like years two and three in the out years. And they've just been in a world of hurt till about the last six to eight weeks, really. I mean, they're starting to hit 90 some odd percent of 
uh, of kind of uh, pre-COVID type numbers. I think they're they're realizing they're going to be around as an industry now and all. But is there any chance we're just in backwardation because you had every producer who saw minus $37 oil who would be willing to hedge at some price and you just the natural other side of the trade just wasn't there? Is that anything? Or, yeah, I mean, you're you're hitting on, who knows? you're hitting on the right point. I, who knows is somewhat the answer, but but you're right. The, the market, you know, the forward curve is not designed to be efficient, right? It's just what someone's willing to pay right now. It's not saying right. you know, it's not it's not necessarily saying what the price will be, you know. But but hedging is one of those things, right? You know, I, I wasn't that long ago when we were talking to customers who were saying, "Gosh, if crude would just get back to forty. Right. We, we'd have a fighting chance. And now yeah. you can you can sell your crude, you know, two years out for eighty five dollars. You know, I, did that back to our you know country clubs filled with people who sold their who sold too early. You know, if I could lock in those kind of returns, that's that's not the worst bet yeah. that someone could make. So it's just all a matter of how much, you know, how much you're willing to live with. I mean, I hear people say they they invest in oil and gas because they want exposure to commodity prices. I, I just, I don't buy that. I think they want exposure to great companies that know how to drive returns on their capital. And that's what they're after. Um, I, always, you know, so, I always say they want the optionality of the home run <laughs> and they don't want the downside. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's, the, that's the more honest way to say it for yeah. sure. But gas, gas is really interesting. So, but crude's, crude is harder to hedge. I won't get into call skew right now. So real quick before we jump to natural gas, because I don't understand natural gas at all. I always get that wrong. Um, are you? Are you? Is it your sense that your your customers on the producing side are sort of willing these days to hedge out three to five years, or are you seeing shorter duration on what they're willing to do? Yeah, we're seeing a bit shorter duration than we've seen in God the God bless the, past. the optimist oil guy. <laughs> you know, it was just a minus 37, <laughs> but it's going to stay right. at 110 It's different forever. this time, right? Yeah, and I know you've hit that before on your podcast. It's not. I mean, capital is yeah. efficient. It will find good homes. And yeah, you're starting to see a little you know, wearing on the renewable sector already. Um but gas is it, well. It, last yeah. question on sure. oil: sure. Uh, consumers, the other side of the trade, the clients you work with. There, are you getting any sort of sense of they want to lock in longer? That maybe they feel like backwardation is kind of historically weird, or does it go back to your point of whatever their base business is and whatever they can hedge on the metal side or, or whatever? Yeah, it's just well, harder for them to do. Diff- yeah, diff- different markets, but. You know, you're seeing people who kept thinking we'll we'll wait this out these high crude prices and it is crushing diesel you know arbob gasoline um, et cetera so you're starting to see people say we or, or jet fuel just back yeah. to the airlines where people are saying gosh it, the, the curve being backwarded is good for us um, yeah. right now maybe it is time these prices are historically high but you know I'd rather be able to lock into something lower. Um, today and not have to wear that risk as long. So, you know, it's just, you know, people will tend to hedge at the, at the wrong time um, a lot because they're, it's, it's all, it's all, (laughs) it's all on sentiment and you just have to, you you have to really see through that right now, but it's, it's a better time for consumers of the products to, to hedge. And, and we've got a refining issue from a crude perspective. I mean, refineries are running at, you know, 90 plus percent right now. And so, you know, figuring out how to get more of that product to market is going to be, you know, we'll get some seasonal, you know, uplift coming out of the summer, but it's a, you know, it's a tough, yeah. it's a tough and, ref- and refineries historically don't 
do very well operationally when they run at full tilt for a long time. I mean, that just so that that's the the scary thing. Well, and you're even seeing the administration right now trying to convince people to bring shuttered refineries back online. I mean, the irony of this just shouldn't be lost on anyone. Now, how long does it take to bring a refinery back up? I don't know. But I think that's a that's a pretty long term solution. That's crazy. So natural gas. Um, I totally missed the associated natural gas story and and why natural gas went to, you know, I'll pay you to take it away. Totally missed that um, during kind of the, the shale revolution. I also missed back, you know, call it 2005 to 2012, the decline in natural gas, even though the strip the whole way was in, you know, contango the, the whole way. What are people saying about natural gas? Yeah. Uh, we, we've got a potential issue near term in natural gas, right? You know, so this is back to really bullish in the front of the curve and we need to be really cautious in the back. We're way undersupplied right now. I mean, we're going into, you know, we're going into kind of peak season with 350 BCF under our historical average. You know, like that's, that's a huge number. Um, and so if we, if we come out and we also have a cold winter, colder than normal. Now yeah. that's not necessarily the base case, but if we do, you know, there's, we're, we're pretty short. So I think the near term outlook for natural gas, pretty strong. However, and this is what we have to spend on. Yeah. Our customers need to be thinking two and three years out, you know, the, we, we've kind of seen the end of LNG for a couple of years. I mean, that has been nothing but straight up in terms of you know, the demand that that's driven for natural gas, we don't have any more projects coming online for two years. So we've and got a when big, you say project, you mean export correct, capability? Yeah, capacity yeah. To, to create it and, and send it out. And so that demand source is, is, uh, is going away. And I think the sentiment out there is production is going to come back. I mean, these prices are going to bring production back. It's been slower than anybody had, had thought at this point, but I, I think we've got to be, you know, got to be cognizant that that production can come back. And, you know, so someone starts to say, gosh, you know, as we look at hedging options in the out years, we've got a, there, there's a, there's a, there's a point in the market right now we've never really seen before where there's a lot of call skew. Okay. So what that means is if I can swap in at $5, <clears throat> then, you know, I can get a floor at four and upside at 10. Right. Okay. For so I've just, I've got a lot more upside for the same dollar. And so collar structures, if you're, if you're an upstream, you know, natural gas producer, not not hedging your out years with collars right now, I would, we, you know, we should probably we yeah. should probably talk because the market's just giving you a great opportunity to participate in the upside, and you know, and limit your downside. It's a it's pretty unique. So, I heard a theory on this, and I need to give credit to it. It's Brad Olson. I don't know if you've ever met Brad, heard about Brad. Brad's kind of mid-30s, long-only hedge fund called Recurrent. And Brad's actually, he's a rice guy, so I'll, I'll you know, pimp my college rice. Uh, you know, he's really smart, all that. But Brad's dug into the data, and actually what Brad has found is the number of rigs running, we all think it's the higher price, the more rigs we have running, right? That's the, he actually has found a tighter correlation between trading multiples of public companies and the number of rigs running. Meaning if I'm trading at 12 times EBITDA, I'm putting as many freaking rigs out there. I don't care if the price is $40, 
$30. It's I'm getting paid 12 times for generating this EBITDA. I'm going to go do it at three times where we're trading today. And, you know, some of the natural gas guys are even lower than that. It's like, I don't have the incentive to go run all those rigs and mess with all that sort of stuff. And so guess what? I'm just going to send the money back to, uh, to my, to my shareholders. And so, you know, when he told me that, I was like, "Hey, you're crazy, you're stupid. But the more you think about it, you know, show me your incentives, I'll show you your actions. And so, because, I mean, I remember just looking at the Delaware Basin, and if you got two west out there in Culberson County, it became really gassy, and at a buck seventy-five, you're like, man, we can't do that, doesn't make any sense. But today at nine, I mean, you could get, and I said Culberson County, that's Permian Basin, I'm I was county dyslexic, which was very <laughs> okay. much a hazard yeah. for being a oil and gas guy. But you get out west in the Delaware Basin, I mean, you can hit 30 million a day wells of natural gas. And so there's tons of it to go drill, the Haynesville, et cetera. Right. So, well, and that's, you know, I, I just believe over time you are going to see the capital come back to the space. Yeah. I, I'm not saying that's going to be next year or the year after, but the long-term trends have to be that this is this is – this is here for longer than any of us are going to be alive. That we're yeah. going to be, you know, completely dependent on hydrocarbons, and you know, this we, time we don't it's we, different. Yeah. So anyway, I, yeah, we, we're not trying to you know predict price. We just want to paint the upside. And you know, when we talk about when should you be hedging, you know, to us it needs to start with when are you making money. Yeah. And, you know, if you if you can guarantee that you're going to make money and you can continue to fund your drilling programs or your dividends or your debt repayment or whatever those things may be, you know, it's hard to hard to get worried about, you know, you know, small price movements beyond that. So give us one other trend that maybe folks in the audience haven't thought about, haven't heard about something out there that that you can kind of let us in on. Um, I don't know that people haven't heard about this. I, I actually find the the work that oil and gas producers are doing. And I, by the way, there's certain things we don't say. We don't say energy transition. We don't. We, I actually try not to say energy anymore to describe this space because I just think oil and gas is so much more important um, than just energy. But you, know, you get my podcast canceled. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can we can talk a little bit about that. Um, but I, I actually think that what's been really fun for us to see, because we work with so many, um, so many producers and see so much of the the oil and gas you know industry, is what people are doing uh, to reduce emissions and become much better stewards of the environment. And I, I think you know, for all the talk of carbon offsets and what does voluntary mean and greenwashing and those sorts of things, I, I've been just really proud of the industry and watch what they're doing in terms of monitoring, you know, making uh, making real adjustments to drive emissions down, and then even taking steps to go beyond that and try to get their their footprint closer to um, you know to uh, to net zero. And we can you know yeah. that, that that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, and even to a point where we're now seeing some producers who are able to turn their operations into credits, you know, carbon capture, utilization, sequestration, CCUS for enhanced right. oil recovery, you know, putting CO2 down hole to do some, you know, sort of last mile recovery of, of oil is actually carbon negative. Um, and you can generate credits as a result of that, which is going to enable more investment back into it. It's just, it's just a really fascinating trend to watch on as people are getting smarter about 
how they're managing their operations and being better stewards of the environment. It's creating a lot of new opportunities to do. Well, what I tell people is you can sit there and say, it's big, bad government making me do this, or it's all these wacky environmentalists making us do this. It's not. I mean, the reason we have all this pressure from all these institutions is because Joe Blow American really cares about it. And we can, we can have a choice. We can go be obnoxious assholes to those people and tell them they're stupid, in which case we'll probably be legislated out of business, or we can go educate and we can be a partner with those folks because there is a lot of ignorance there. And, and ignorance does not mean stupid. It just means uneducated. And so, I mean, the pension fund that says uh, you know, I care about this. I want to hear about emissions is saying that because they either report to a government official that was elected by the people, or they are reporting, uh, they have restrictions and guidelines from their members, teachers, police officers, firemen are saying that. And so, and, and it's getting to the point in the future where literally if you want to be in oil and gas, if you want to be able to sell a property, if you want to be able to access insurance, financing, whatever the case may be, you're going to have to be cognizant of this and we need to embrace that. So perfectly said. Yeah. And, and I, I think. And it's the right thing to do. Uh, absolutely. And I've heard you say many times that the industry needs to rebuild trust. And, 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 I, and I kind of go the next step and say get on their front foot about telling these, these stories. Uh, a little bit differently. I, I, I just think they're, they're, what's happening again, what we just talked about monitoring, changing operations is real. And people are doing, are just much better stewards. They need to, to be able to tell that story. Back to why I, I don't, I talk about, you know, about oil and gas versus energy. You, have, you know, all the talk of, you know, electric vehicles. Let's just use that as an example, as limiting fossil fuel. Well, okay, let's just talk about the tires, you know, on the car. Let's talk about the asphalt rolled rows that you're on. Let's talk about the plastic that's inside. Let's talk about the, you know, the crude oil that was burned, you know, mining the the lithium, you know, that I mean, it's just, it's broader than energy. And I just think it's, it's the one commodity that everybody on, well, not everybody on the planet, unfortunately, we'll talk about that in a yeah. second, but that almost every American, the minute they pick up their cell phone has touched that commodity today. The minute they get in the car, they've touched that commodity today. There's not many that there's not many commodities that people do that with. And I just think we need we need to talk about the role oil and gas plays in a different way. That's yes, energy is important and will be again for the foreseeable future. And it does a lot. There's there's just a lot more to it. Yeah. There's there's no question that I mean, it does a lot of good things. We need to highlight that message. Uh one of the things we did the the zero streaming event last week and a question I asked a couple of times on the panels I was involved in is, OK, we're doing all this. How do we get credit for that? And I think I think that's all of us in the industry need to be thinking through that is, hey, we just did a great job with emissions uh, on this field or that field. How do we get credit for that telling our story? And I've got to give uh, credit to Addison Holmes with uh, Pickering Energy Partners, she actually says the SEC guidelines that are coming forward where you're going to have to report emissions is going to be good for oil and gas because it's going to level the playing field. We're going to understand what Amazon's carbon footprint looks like and the other technology folks out there. So Right. Well, and, and what's interesting to me, you know, and I, this, this bothers me a bit that 
if I'm S and G, I'm really frustrated because ESG has been as is now fully focused on climate and climate only. And I, I think that's one thing we've got to start to do is and which is important, by the way. Yeah. I don't I don't want to I don't yeah. I, I mean we we need to be better. But there's also the S, you know, in it, you know, the, the social piece of this, you know, the energy poverty around the world is a much bigger issue than most social issues we're talking about today. You know, access to affordable housing, much bigger, you know, social issue yeah. today. You know, uh, inflation and the impact on purchasing power for the middle class, much bigger social issue today. That that's a that's a big thing. We've got to we've got to factor into these discussions and then. You know, the governance is a fascinating one as, you know, someone who's a, you know, chair of a comp committee of a public company. You know, I, I view my, I, I have a, I really know what governance means, right? I've yeah. actually held accountable yeah. to that. And, and, um, you know, I, I think just simple governance on how long we're going to allow unprofitable ventures to continue to chew up capital in the name of, you know, social good is just something we're going to have to reconcile over time. I, I believe there should be investment. I believe renewables are needed. I believe they're additive to, you know, serving what are going to need to be, you know, uh, future, you know, energy needs. But, you know, we, we've got to, we've got to allow some of these things to run on their own and make a business case so that to your point, we can level the playing field across all of this. So, and yeah. we, I mean, we ignore, we ignore CO2 rising and temperature rising at our own peril. I mean, I, I've, I don't I, I, my turn to get my podcast canceled <laughs> instead of you. I mean, is the science ironclad that we know exactly what's going to happen in 75 or 100 years, how quickly this is going to happen? I don't think it's it's that settled, but you know, you'd hate to look up a hundred years from now and go, oops. Yeah, yeah I totally agree. And yeah. to me, that's why I just wish everyone used we need, the just word need to be, Yeah, we need to be thoughtful about it and we need to spend a hundred on the problem instead of 500 because that other extra 400 could do a lot of society that, good. Exactly yeah. right. We just, there's just, we just don't use the word and enough, right? Yeah. <laughs> we need, we need to do this and this, not yeah. this or this. Yeah. And, um, you know, look, we'll, we'll get there. You, you start to see some of the sentiment, you know, shifting a bit already, I think. And, um, yeah, we'll, we'll find our, we'll find our, place. everybody's hearts in the right place. We know these are things we need to get after. We'll land, we'll figure it out. So speaking of heart, real quick before we go, you got to tell me about 17. So I'm going to hold this up so that uh, where's my camera? So tell me about 17 because we are not above this or below this or whatever, above this at the Chuck Yates Needs a Job Pack. We take bribes and you brought a bribe, <laughs> which was very cool of you. Tell me about 17. Yeah. Yeah. We, we actually, we'll, we call it one seven just because that's baseball speak. Um, but my best friend and I were out in Napa and, um, you know, we, we had a lot of, a lot of interesting things happen in 2017. We happened to both be the same, you know, number in college. We were both 17. Um, you know, it, the 2017s were in, in barrel at the time. And we just got to talk and said, we need to, we need to have our own, own label. And so in baseball, you would say one seven generally, if you're talking about someone's number and referring to them. And so we, um, you know, we decided to, you know, do our own label. And I know you're a bit of a wine drinker, so I wanted to That's bring you in cool. on it. So it's just, you know, we, One we, don't, seven. we don't do anything to sell. We do things to share. So, um, you know, it's. No, uh, that's very cool and, uh, and much appreciated. And I'll just go ahead and get on the soapbox here. When you hang out at Digital Wildcatters, there's a bunch of 30 year olds 
There is not a <laughs> wine, a corkscrew in this whole place. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly could have brought one of those. Yeah. Well, I, I, sh- I should have brought one too. But uh, anyway, well, Brian, appreciate you coming in. Good stuff. How do folks reach you? Yeah, we're Aegis, A-E-G-I-S-Hedging.com is our is our website. Um, and then everybody is first initial, last name. So I'm B Sansbury at Aegis-Hedging.com. Love to love to hear from. And so so folks that want to hedge, buy, sell, you're there to help them out. Yeah, we're gonna do everything from helping people just understand markets, and that's broadly across, you know, across oil and gas, you know, metals, um, and also including carbon offsets and other environmental offsets, the, the compliance pieces. We're gonna help them design hedging strategies. We'll help take those transactions to market if they like and help them manage them ongoing. Cool. Thanks again for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs>